The Lord says to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies your footstool. The Lord sends forth from Zion your mighty scepter. Rule in the midst of your enemies. Your people will offer themselves freely on the day of your power in holy garments from the womb of the morning. The dew of your youth will be yours. The Lord is sworn and will not change his mind. You're a priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. The Lord is at your right hand. He will shatter kings on the day of his wrath. He will execute justice among the nations, filling them with corpses. He will shatter chiefs over the wide earth. He will drink from the brook by the way. Therefore, he will lift up his head. That is Psalm 110, which along with Psalm 2 are the psalms appointed for today, Tuesday, January the 5th, 2021. You're listening to Faith Seeking Understanding, and I'm your host, John Green. We are on the eve of Epiphany, the day in which we celebrate the arrival of the Magi at um, Jesus' birthplace. The revelation of him, the Epiphany, the knowledge of him in the world. So it moves beyond just his family into this larger thing. So that will be the 12th day of Christmas. So we celebrate the Magi on that day. And then today we're continuing to look at the, the heroic people in the history of Israel. We've looked at Abraham, we've looked at Moses and, and Jacob, and then we, now we're looking at Joshua as we finish up this Christmas season, the season of Epiphany, begins tomorrow. So we're going to be in Joshua 1, 1 to 9, in the still continuing in Hebrews, 11.32 to 12.2, and then in John's Gospel, the first 16 verses of chapter 15. So after the death of Moses, the servant of the Lord, the Lord said to Joshua, the son of Nun, Moses' assistant, Moses, my servant, is dead. Now, therefore, arise, Go over this Jordan, you and all this people, into the land that I'm giving to them, to the people of Israel. So, so as Moses led the people out of Egypt through the Red Sea, now his successor, Joshua, will be leading the people out of the wilderness through the Jordan River into the land. There's a closure and a symmetry around those two things. Every place that the sole of your foot will tread upon, I have given to you, just as I promised to Moses. So he's saying that that step out, move out, move forward. There's a difference in the way that they crossed the Red Sea versus the way they crossed the Jordan River. At the Red Sea, Moses is commanded to stretch out his staff over the sea, and that's when when it rolls back. With the Jordan River, because they've balked it going into the land and they've been stuck in the wilderness for those 40 years, then the next thing that has to happen is God's telling them they have to put their feet in the water before it's going to roll back. They've got to take the step of faith in order for that to happen. So he says, from the wilderness and this Lebanon, as far as the great river, the river Euphrates, all the land of the Hittites to the great sea toward the going down of the sun shall be your territory. No man shall be able to stand before you all the days of your life, just as I was with Moses, so I will be with you. Well, if all those other things are going to happen, then that's the greatest promise you could possibly have is the promise of presence, which is exactly what Jesus promised us. The Great Commission ends with, Lo, I will be with you always, even to the end of the age. And so we know that as we go about the work that we've been given to do, that he goes with us. And he's going to talk about that in the gospel lesson. But here he has promised to be with 
Joshua in the same way that he was with Moses. I will not leave you or forsake you. Be strong and courageous, for you shall cause this people to inherit the land that I swore to their fathers to give them. And it's odd to me, or at least it was odd to me for a long time, that God had to continually tell Joshua. And it actually begins at the end of Deuteronomy with Moses telling him to be strong and courageous. But it seems odd, right? Because only Joshua and Caleb of the spies were the ones who said, come on, let's go. Let's go take the land. Yes, there are giants there, but it doesn't matter because God's with us. We can do this thing. And so why does God, beginning with Moses, have to encourage Joshua so much? Well, I was talking to a buddy of mine yesterday about some of these same kinds of issues in a different context, and and the reality is being the two guy in an organization is always easier to have strength and courage because ultimately you're not the one who's going to be blamed if it goes badly. So Joshua, as the two guy, was prepared to do this stuff, and now as he becomes the one guy, then, then there's a temptation to play it safe and to doubt these things in a way that's different if you're not the number one guy. <clears throat> so only be strong and very courageous, being careful to do according to all the law that my servant Moses commanded you. Don't turn from it to the right or to the left, that you may have good success wherever you go. The book of the law shall not depart from your mouth, but you shall meditate on it day and night so that you may be careful to do all according to what was written in it. In other words, it matters how you live. The conquest of the land at some level is dependent upon Joshua keeping faith with the Lord and keeping the commandments of God in order to to take this step and lead this people into the conquest, Joshua has to be careful to do all that the law commands. He has to know the law. He's a military commander. But ultimately, it's God who takes the land. It's up to him entirely. Joshua may be the military leader, but the military leader, any leader of God's people, has to be grounded completely in the Word of God in order to properly lead his people. And he doesn't just have to know the Word of God, he has to do the Word of God. He says, for then you will make your way prosperous, and then you'll have good success. Have I not commanded you? Be strong and courageous. Do not be frightened. Do not be dismayed. For the Lord your God is with you wherever you go. That's all you need. You need God. And if you're doing God's business, God's way, then you'll get God's results. And that's exactly the promise that he makes to Joshua. If you'll remain in communion with me in all that you do, then I will prosper you in all things. It's the same exact thing that he makes with David. It's the same thing he promises to do with Solomon, but Solomon won't do it. And that's exactly the problem is is that we, we have a very difficult time remaining, especially in times of prosperity and success, we have a very difficult time with that because we tend to wander and we tend to then lose sight of what's truly important because we get so bogged down in all the other stuff. But but he's told here, be very careful always to stay in the Word and to do the Word. And Jesus is going to say the same thing in this passage, this gospel passage. I'm the true vine and my Father is the vine dresser. Every branch in me that does not bear fruit, he takes away. And every branch that does bear fruit, he prunes, that it may bear more fruit. 
it's it's an important part of vine dressing actually to prune those branches that are actually producing fruit and it might look horrible for instance we had um, I, the first time I saw this was in Knoxville, and if I hadn't seen it happen there, I'd, I'd be scared. You know, I'd be—I wouldn't feel so confident about it here. And that is, is that we had some holly trees out in front of our house, and we were on the dogwood trail, and so we had—I don't even remember—like 40 dogwoods and about 80 azaleas, and so all these things are coming into bloom at the same time. Well, the the hollies had gotten so large that they had kind of overwhelmed some of the azaleas, and I had a friend who, who started a business that took care of the yards and stuff, and so I, you know, I was his first customer, and so I, we, we set it up so that, that I would pay him just two big checks a year, and those checks would pay for his mortgage in the winter months. That was the only way his wife would allow him to take the risk and step out and, and start this business. So he asked me to do that. I said, sure. And so I talked to him about these holly trees, and I came home from working one day, and, and I see that these holly trees are basically just cut down to the ground. And I'm looking at him like, have you lost your mind? I didn't ask you to do that. He said, John, I looked into this stuff, and, and it says that that's the right way to do it, and it'll be okay. And sure enough, those things did perfectly fine. So here at the house recently, we had a couple of years ago, we had some trees fall on the house, and when they fell, they took down a couple of hollies. Well, we cut those hollies pretty much all the way to the ground. They were only literally three or four inches off the ground, but they're, they've come back. Um, so it, you can, they had to be pruned in order to be more fruitful. Already you're clean because the word that I've spoken to you, abide in me and I in you. And we've had, we had a small group at the house for a while that we argued about this all the time. And, and people would ask, you know, what does it mean to abide? And they wanted it mostly to be defined by some passive sort of reading the word and praying. And that's how I abide in Christ. But that is not what he says here at all. Abide in me and I in you, as the branch cannot bear fruit by itself unless it abides in the vine, neither can you unless you abide in me. I'm the vine, you're the branches. Those things are kind of indistinguishable from themselves, right? If you've ever been around grapevines and stuff much, you, you know that, that it's very difficult to tell the difference between the vine and the branches, but the vine provides all the nutrients because it's connected through the root to the source of all those nutrients. And so abiding in Christ is in that same way. It allows us to be connected to the source of all nutrients that we need in order to bear fruit. <clears throat> I'm the vine, you're the branches. Whoever abides in me and I in him, he it is that bears much fruit. For apart from me, you can do nothing. If you abide in me, you'll bear much fruit. If you don't, you can do nothing. Nothing at all. If anyone does not abide in me, he's thrown away like a branch and withers, and the branches are gathered, thrown into the fire, and burned. If you abide in me, and my words abide in you, ask whatever you wish, and it will be done for you. By this, my Father is glorified that you bear much fruit, and so prove to be my disciples. As the Father has loved me, so have I loved you. Abide in my love. It's important that in abiding in him, we have to go back to the words of Joshua there and see that the way that we abide in him is to do the things that he commands us to do. We can't live a life that's separate from Jesus' commandments and say that we abide in him. No, we, we have to abide in him and doing the things that he would do 
doing the things that he commands us to do, but also by doing the things that we're personally led to do by the power of his Holy Spirit. And to the extent that we balk at doing those things, then, then we begin to have a problem. Because he says, if you keep my commandments, you will abide in my love. So this abiding thing is an active participation in the life of Christ. If you keep my commandments, you'll abide in my love, just as I have kept my Father's commandments and abide in his love. You can't uncouple those two things. These things I've spoken to you, that my joy may be in you, and that your joy may be full. And this is my commandment, that you love one another as I've loved you. Greater love has no one than this, that someone lay down his life for his friends. You're my friends if you do what I command you. These... We have tried so hard in the way that we've presented the gospel and what it means to to get salvation. We have uncoupled obedience with belief. But the reality is Jesus never, ever did that. In fact, as I said, the Great Commission's part of the Great Commission is to teach the disciples you make to do all Jesus has commanded. His only commandment is not to love one another. There's more than that. And we've got to get our heads around the fact that that it's a life, not just a mind thing. No longer do I call you servants, for the servant does not know what his master is doing, but I've called you friends for all that I've heard from my father I've made known to you. You did not choose me, but I chose you and appointed you that you should go and bear much fruit and that your fruit should abide so that whatever you ask the father in my name, he may give it to you. He makes a lot of promises there that if we abide in him, if we do all these things, then the Father will do much through us. We'll bear much fruit, and he'll answer our prayers. What about that is problematic? I mean, wouldn't you, aren't those the things we would want? Well, God's promised those things no less than he promised that Moses would take the people out of Egypt, no less than he promised Joshua that they would conquer the land. It's important for us to count on the promises God's made, that he'll be with us wherever we go as long as we're going about doing the work of the Great Commission. In the Hebrews passage, remember what we've done so far as we've looked at these heroes of the faith from the Old Testament. And now he says, what more should I say? For time would fail me to tell of Gideon, Barak, Samson, Jephthah, David, Samuel, and the prophets, who through faith conquered kingdoms, enforced justice, obtained promises, stopped the mouths of lions, quenched the power of fire, escaped the edge of the sword, were made strong out of weakness, became mighty in war, put armies to flight. Women received back their dead by resurrection. Some were tortured, refusing to accept release, so that they might arise again to a better life. Others suffered mocking and flogging and even chains and imprisonment. They were stoned. They were sawn in two. They were killed with a sword. They went about in skins of sheep and goats, destitute, afflicted, mistreated, of whom the world was not worthy, wandering about in deserts and mountains and in in dens and caves of the earth. That doesn't sound like the way things are described in the church in America these days. Because the way it's described in the church in America is, is that if you just believe and, and believe God's promises, then you'll be wealthy and prosperous and successful in everything you do. You, your life will be pretty good. That is not what the writer of Hebrews just described. 
he says that these people laid aside any kind of worldly gain that they could possibly have had for the sake of faith, for the sake of believing in God and being dedicated to his purposes on the earth. And because they did, it didn't always go well for them. In fact, Jesus said, they'll hate you for these things. We've got to we've got to get our heads right about that. It's just so weird to hear these messages that that don't take seriously the reality that it, that it, the more Christ-like you are, the more the world's going to hate you. It crucified him, but we have to persevere in these things because what we're searching for is that treasure in the field, that pearl of great price, the thing that's more valuable than anything this earth has to offer us. And we got to be willing to forego all those pleasures and all those um, comforts in order to receive the kingdom. No less than the rich young ruler had to forsake all those things in order to inherit eternal life. And all these, though commended by their faith, did not receive what was promised, since God had provided something better for us, that apart from us, they should not be made perfect. There's a fullness of time in all these things that I think we overlook frequently. It's the same fullness of time in uh, the fulfillment of God's promise to Abraham of a son. There's the fullness of time in the time that they endured in Egypt because the sin of the Canaanites had not yet filled up the land. There's a fullness of time in the Noah story. We don't know how much time elapsed there, but it was a long, long time for him to build that ark and all those things to happen. There's a fullness of time in the coming again of Jesus. And we need to be clear that everything is not about us. And that's what this says, is is that, that God has provided something better for us, that apart from us, they should not be made perfect. It's for generations to come, and God is filling up the kingdom through these years and centuries and millennia. Therefore, since we are surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses, those who have gone before, let us also lay aside every weight and sin which clings so closely, and let us run with endurance the race that is set before us, looking to Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and is seated at the right hand of the throne of God. So what are these things these weights and sins that have to be laid aside. It's anything that keeps us from being 100% focused on the kingdom of God. Every single Christian is called to that kind of singular focus to run with endurance the race that is set before us. We can do all these other things, but those other things should not control us or own our lives because he bought us at Calvary. And therefore, we owe him everything, all the hope, all the dreams, and all the glory.